Hello and welcome to the podcast version of Scripps 5 Must Know Things, this time for the Business Week ended 3rd November 2023. This is Ian Haydock. This time, CEOs on global tensions, Roche's new Alzheimer's contender, Sanofi Eyes external deals, investors' reactions to clinical data, and avoiding Korean licensing pitfalls. Global tensions and US drug pricing pressure are growing risks to the pharmaceutical sector that could have long-lasting implications, according to some of the industry's top CEOs who participated in a panel discussion at the Gallien Forum in New York City on 26th October. Pfizer CEO Albert Borla, Eli Lilly CEO David Ricks and CGen CEO David Epstein discussed pressing issues for the pharmaceutical industry in the post-COVID era. Jessica Merrill writes. A new war in the Middle East, coming on top of the ongoing war between Ukraine and Russia, and mounting tensions between nations like the US, China and India, could disrupt a business and present new risks to the sector's supply chains, commercial efforts and R&D, the CEOs agreed. The first thing, of course, is that people are losing their lives, Borla said. But clearly, there are implications on everyone. Given the industry's investment and expansion into China, any changes to the relationship between China and the US are also a concern, Bull added. All these tensions create tension in China that will disfavour us compared to others, he said. China also is emerging as a major science power. I think they are not at the level of the US or UK at that stage, but they are catching up very, very quickly. So I think in four or five years, we will see innovation from Chinese laboratories becoming global innovations, and that will become now even more tension. Lilly's Ricks also pointed to revenue risk if access to certain commercial markets is restricted, though thus far he said the impact has been small. Russia, Ukraine at least, are much smaller than China. But even with that, China is what, 6-7% to of our global industry and revenue. Most of the Chinese farmer market is domestic, which is interesting. Probably the biggest risk I worry about is more of a long-term one, which is adding risk to the already incredibly risky operation of R&D, Ricks said. The US and much of the Western world have come to agree to a large extent on regulatory standards and intellectual property enforcement for drugs, and even generally on the value of medicines, he said. Probably that gets worse over the next 10 years, he predicted. So, imagine a small company or a large company having to conduct different development programs for different regulatory regimes. Again, we've gotten used to doing it once for the world. You could see that regressing. And I think that's a consequence of the terrible wars and conflicts and diffusion of the world. Roche may still have a shot at bringing an anti-amyloid antibody forward as a disease-modifying treatment for Alzheimer's disease, now that it may have found a way around the challenge of clearing enough amyloid plaque rapidly enough to potentially impact the trajectory of cognitive and functional decline. However, the company still has a long way to go to show that trontinimab's effect on amyloid reduction may translate into more significant efficacy than its predecessor, gantanerumab, Mandy Jackson writes. Luka Kulic, who's Therapeutic Area Leader for Dementias and Medical Director for Neuroscience and Rare Diseases in Roche's Pharmaceutical Research and Early Development Unit, 
presented interim Phase 1b 2a trial results for trontinimab on 25th October at the Clinical Trials on Alzheimer's Disease meeting in Boston. The highest of three initial doses tested in the study showed an 84 centiloid reduction in amyloid at 28 weeks, far exceeding the amyloid clearance from early Alzheimer's patients' brains at any time point in the Phase 3 graduate 1 and 2 studies for gantanerumab. Trontinimab uses Roche's brain shuttle technology for getting molecules across the blood-brain barrier. In particular, large molecules like antibodies, they do not really readily cross the blood-brain barrier to enter the central nervous system, Kulich said in an interview with Scrip. And we have now the first-generation molecules now approved and with the first positive results, but they have to be dosed at relatively high doses because there is the blood-brain barrier. This is obviously a limitation. With Roche's brain shuttle technology, by delivering drugs across the blood-brain barrier, he said the company hopes to achieve or exceed at lower doses what standard antibodies achieve at much higher doses because the active and rapid transport of drug into the CNS translates into improved exposure and target engagement. The Phase 1a 2b study enrolled patients with mild cognitive impairment due to Alzheimer's and people with mild to moderate AD into four cohorts to test multiple ascending doses of trontinimab versus placebo administered every four weeks for 28 weeks. This study is really the first one where we tested this molecule in patients with the target pathology and were able to show these strong and rapid amyloid clearing effects in patients with AD. Kulich said. Having unveiled plans to double down its investments in R&D, Sanofi's confidence in its internal pipeline does not mean that the French drug maker will be turning its back on packs with external partners. That point was stressed by CEO Paul Hudson after Sanofi announced a range of initiatives including a proposed spin-off of its consumer health unit to improve its cost structure and free up resources to support the proposed accelerated R&D investments. The Paris-headquartered company is targeting savings of up to €2 billion Euros to the end of 2025, of which most will be reallocated to fund innovation and growth drivers, Kevin Grogan writes. Sanofi has been one of the most active big farmers on the business development front in the past few years, and when asked on the company's third quarter earnings call on 27th October, Hudson said that we have significantly increasing confidence in our own pipeline and we don't carry placeholders for just in case. We are very, very comfortable that we have a lot in our own pipeline that can deliver transformational value creation. Having said that, Hudson acknowledged that there is scope for external programmes where we want to tuck something in, so we have to make a little space to get it done. As an example, he referenced the recent deal with Teva Pharmaceutical for TEV574, a drug in the TL1A inhibitor class that's currently in a phase 2b study for ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. Sanofi also had to work very hard to secure another pact earlier this month, Hudson said, joining forces with Johnson & Johnson for the commercialisation of a potential first-in-class vaccine against extra-intestinal pathogenic E. coli, which is currently in Phase 3 testing. Both of these deals involve a major investment, but Hudson stressed that while we've increased some flexibility for partnerships, it would be a mistake for people to think we're not maintaining or increasing discipline. 
Improving the operational efficiency of the company is an absolute priority, but we want to get on with the work and create the value, he said. Investors' reaction to the success of Tempest Therapeutics' liver cancer trial hit on 11th October was extraordinary. And a new analysis by Scripps, Elizabeth Cairns and Edwin Elmhurst shows just how extraordinary it was. The median share price rise in reaction to a company posting positive clinical data has sat at 37% over the past five years or so. But Tempest shareholders' vast enthusiasm has distorted this figure as calculated for the past four months, driving it up to 137%, a huge outlier. The analysis was constructed from Evaluate Pharma's Event Analyzer, which tracks the biggest stock price movements each day across almost 700 listed biopharma groups. Only events which produce a market cap change of more than $35 million are captured. Scripp interrogated the data for moves triggered by the release of clinical data. To provide a snapshot of the smaller and more volatile end of the sector, only companies with a market cap of less than $25 billion were considered. The one-day rise of nearly 4,000% in Tempest's share price is unprecedented in this cohort, and it's all the more extraordinary when looking at the averages for negative data. Usually, investors punish companies releasing bad news far more than they reward successes. The mean positive reaction is tracking at a share price increase of about 18% since 2018, whereas shareholder reactions to trial failures result in a mean drop of around 30%. That said, a comparison of the biggest percentage moves seen in 2023 shows greater ups than downs. Perhaps even more interestingly, all the large positive percentage shifts were in the second half of this year and all the losses were in H1. Any theory that this represents an improvement in market sentiment across the year is given the lie by a look at the performance of the Nasdaq Biotechnology Index. The index fell by 3% across the first half of 2023, but even more steeply by 11% from the mid-year point to 30th October. The greatest valuation loss so far this year was recorded by Acaro Therapeutics following the failure of its FGF21 analogue, Ifruxifermin, in the hot area of Nash. The company intends to persevere with Phase 3 studies, and if Acaro does report a surprise late-stage hit, it's clear the rewards could be enormous. Finally, since Hanmi Pharmaceutical reached a series of major global outlicensing deals with multinational pharma partners in 2014-15, outlicensing has been a key growth strategy for the South Korean biopharma industry, which mostly lacks sufficient capital to pursue its own expensive later-stage development of new drugs in international markets. However, a global industry expert from Sightline noted that over-reliance on outlicensing in the longer run may actually act to restrict healthy growth as Korean firms miss opportunities to gain first-hand experience in the pre-commercialization development phase as well as in sales and marketing. Reliance on outlicensing is something like an addiction. It provides a short-term fix but can end negatively. This can create a vicious circle that can be hard to escape making it more difficult to achieve sustained long-term growth and maturity, said Timothy Pang, who's Managing Vice President of Sightline Consulting and Analytics at a recent symposium in Seoul 
organised by the Career Drug Development Fund. So what can we do? Perhaps out licence in moderation, but also try to embrace that risk-reward equation where possible. He noted there may be other business models that allow for the greater healthy long-term development of the domestic industry and advised that alternative business models could capitalise on Korean capabilities and scale. Outlicensing is positive, but is a curse as well as a blessing in the long term and may not lead to stable long-term industry growth and maturity, Pang said. Even in the short term, drug development is difficult and usually fails. So, attractive-looking total deal values for successful outlicensing activities can turn out to be less valuable than hoped for. As a result, industry players should consider diversifying their growth models to move away from an overfocus on outlicensing and choose their business models to match their size and strengths, he advised. The biggest Korean drug companies could consider moving towards retaining their assets internationally and using novel drugs to become truly global players. For firms outside the top tier, providing services to the biopharma sector remains a potentially lucrative and consistent revenue source to fund R&D. Contract development and manufacturing capabilities could be developed in tandem to fund in-house R&D. Pang told the meeting Korean pipelines are roughly on a par with global levels in areas such as biologics, cell therapies, RNA and oncology, although there is notable domestic R&D activity in neurology and metabolic disorders in particular, which are likely to create considerable growth this decade. The overall footprint in gene therapies and rare diseases is relatively small in Korea. According to data from Sightline and Pharma Projects, Korea accounted for about 10% of biopharma R&D globally and 23% within the APAC region, with about 2,200 active drug development programmes across more than 850 companies. However, Korean R&D is seen as highly diffused, with the top five companies accounting for 11% of the total Korean pipeline. Oncology accounted for around 40% of Korean deals since 2019, based on alliances where one or more party is headquartered in Korea. That's all for this time. Many thanks for listening. The stories mentioned here are linked below, and if you are already a subscriber, please sign in to access all of our much more extensive global content. Otherwise, sign up for a free trial to see what you're missing. Bye for now.